Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Joining me today in studio is Steve Collier, who's the general counsel, and Julie Bosvert. Did I even kill it? I did. What is it, Julie? That's okay. It's, it's actually Beauvert. Oh, Beauvert. Do you know, I, I on one of my notes, I wrote it down, how to pronounce it, because you, you provided it. Has, it has been pronounced so many different I ways. I bet it has. Beauvert, Sorry about that. Beauvert, which is the French name. <laughs> Boisvert is another one. But Beauvert is just Beauvert. Thank Beauvert. you. I got it now. Thanks. Um, and uh, Julie is the chief of meat inspection uh, for the Vermont Agency of Agriculture. And there's a whole bunch of other names that go over agriculture. Uh, food and market. That's something new over the years, I think. Anyway, welcome to the both of you. Um, I'm going to explain why we're going to be talking about all of this in a few minutes. But maybe, um, Scott, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having us, welcome. Pat. Uh, Steve Collier, as you said, I'm general counsel for the agency. I grew up in rural Vermont and left the state for a long time and came back to raise my family. A number of years ago, and I grew up surrounded by farms, and there aren't very many of those left. And a big piece of the initiative that we have at the agency is to preserve our rural communities, our rural landscape. We recognize the importance of our farmers to our state as a whole, and we work every day to try to make sure that farmers can keep doing all the work that they do to serve us. Great. Thank you. Thank you for all the work you guys do. Julie, you want to talk a little bit about your background? Sure. Good morning. Um, Julie Bovier at the Vermont Agency of Agriculture, Food and Markets. And originally, um, I started out as a, um, as, with my own processing facility, was a uh, pasta uh, company in my hometown of Barrie, Vermont. Um, at that point, I was uh, working a lot with um, with meat, making meat raviolis, um, fresh pasta, sauces, and I was under the jurisdiction of the state meat inspection program at that time, and that's what really brought my interest to what the meat inspection program does. Um, I had a lot of respect for them and the regulatory assistance that they provided me at that time. After I sold the business, I actually started working for the Agency of Agriculture, first as a food safety um, specialist and an inspector, and then moved into the Enforcement Investigation Analysis Officer. And that is just a, a big words uh, for saying that I was um, equipped to um, to work with our establishments on their food safety HACCP plans um, to help them revise them and to make them written for their intended use. Um, I've been with the agency, like I said, 17 years. For the past three years, I actually have now been the uh, program section chief. And at this point, um, I still go out and I do provide a lot of outreach for our new and existing facilities, um, helping those that want to come under our program, um, under our state meat inspection program, um, giving them the guidance and the education um, that they that they need to to succeed in the business. So thank you for having us oh, today. You're welcome. And, thank um, you. This is actually, I'd rather take a few minutes in the beginning of the show to tell you how this program all came about. Uh, my husband and I summer in Maine. It's a tough job, but we do it, you know. Um, anyway, uh, last year, as we all watched the cost of meat and poultry begin to rise, um, I was getting my uh, vegetables at a farm stand near us, and they had a cooler, and there was all this meat from their farm. And so I started buying it because it was cheaper than where we were shopping in the bigger commercial stores. So, um, But I got friendly with the woman, um, the farmer, and she told me that, 
she had to bring her what her cows and and produce whatever two and a half hours to be um, to be processed and uh, get ready for sale and she, and then we started talking about the cost she said well if i didn't have to do two and a half hours each way my my cost would be lower too so uh, that's what got me started thinking about all, all this and who who inspects it how do we know it's good um i i never went to their farm i went to the farm stand and um, so I never really saw where everything was and what was happening. So when I came back, I called uh, the Secretary Tebbets and I asked him about all of this. And uh, he explained to me, which we'll talk about, about who inspects what meat and how it all works. And um, and then I knew from years ago there was a big issue about processing here in Vermont. There was like hardly any. And a lot of times they had to go over to Maine. Um, and it just got to be very complicated, big issue to try to solve that problem. So when Ensign, uh, Secretary Tebbets was on the show a couple of weeks ago, I, I started talking about this again. He goes, say no more. I've got my two experts. They'll come on the show. So here you both are. So thank you very much. Um, so um, I'm just going to throw out the questions and you guys can decide, uh, no fighting, but you can decide uh, <laughs> what, what question to add. So I mentioned this. There was a shortage of slaughterhouses and processing facilities in Vermont, causing a pressure on everybody, on, on farmers and the supply chain. Could you explain where we are these days as far as um, um, servicing the farmers and how to get their Product sure. Or? So I'd be happy to to start out with this um, this this ever arching problem. It seems to be that no matter how many slaughterhouses or processing facilities we have in our state, we could always use more. We have so many farmers out there that produce, um, you know, cattle, sheep, goats, uh, swine, and they they're always looking for ways that they can promote their businesses and sell their product elsewhere. And how are you going to do that? You need to have them done under inspection. So, and and having those slaughterhouses close by without having to truck, you know, these animals so far away, like what you just described right. in Maine, two and a half hours, that seems unreasonable and, right. and very stressful for the animals and the owners. Um, but having said that, there's only so much that we can do. We we do promote and we do try to get more facilities out there. We we work with them every day. Anyone that wants to come under inspection, you know, we we are there to to guide and give them the um, the help that they need. Um, in our state right now, we have 13 um, facilities mm. under the meat inspection program. Now, having said that, um, three of those um, are slaughterhouses and three of them are poultry um, ah. slaughterhouses and the rest of remaining are, are just strictly processing facilities. We also have the USDA Federal um, Inspection Service um, where we have 19 slaughter and processing facilities. Again, seven of those are livestock slaughter facilities and three of them are poultry facilities. We, at this point, are, are looking at, at a lot of our processing facilities, looking at our custom facilities. We, we currently have 38 custom um, facilities in the state of Vermont, reaching out to them um, to, to see and, and to ask if, you know, coming under inspection even part-time would be helpful for the slaughterhouses. Slaughterhouses, they, you know, they, they work, they, they slaughter four or five days a week, um, and trying to keep up with the processing of those carcasses. 
that's where it's very timely and very um, hands-on consuming um, to get this project done. If we could get more of these processors out there to take some of the load off of the slaughterhouses, take some of those carcasses, um, transport them back to their uh, facilities, it would be a great deal of, of help for the slaughterhouses and possibly be able to book more animals in. Right, and there's, it's not just poultry and beef. I mean, I'm assuming swine. Um, I'm just trying to think of all the different uh, goat. Goats um, and swine, yeah. um, sheep, yeah. um, and the small ruminants, as you said, the sheep and the goats. Um, it's very difficult to find access to slaughter facilities for them. Right. There, there seems not to be as much of a, um, you know, an, a, a back of, of, of payment or, or um, investment. Oh. Um, and so slaughterhouses tend to lean toward uh, the, the larger bigger, animals. Right, right. But it, we, we are still searching and, and hoping that, um, you know, we can provide that service for the small ruminants. There's so many of them farmers out there that need this process. And so we don't want to see that um, go away. Right. Yeah. Now, wasn't there, I'm just thinking, years ago, uh, um, the secretary was talking about a portable slaughterhouse. Do we have still have that um, we, or not? They're all stationary now. As of now, they're all stationary slaughter and processing facilities. We did have a mobile unit. Um, it's very difficult for these mobile units to work in the winter times in Vermont right. with the back roads and trying to get them to different places, not to mention um, getting the water and the waste removal that they need once they go to these farms. So ideally, it, it didn't quite work here right. in our state. Right. Um, it, it's always a, a Maybe later on trying to work at this again. Um, we've, we've actually, uh, gone through the process of looking for more of our, um, custom, um, processors providing custom slaughter with a <clears throat> possible mobile rig, but that's, that's just again in the works and, but, for now, it is all just stationary. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm just thinking how one cleans a mobile. I mean, there's a lot of problems here. And I'm, I was saying, even the slaughterhouses themselves, you've got to be on top of that from a cleaning perspective and probably not mixing and matching uh, different um, animals. And uh, it must be pretty intense. That's true. All species do need to be considered when they go through the slaughter process, and every establishment does have a very rigorous sanitation program that right. they have to adhere to. That's part of being under inspection and part of the regulatory requirements that right. we have to follow. Well, now, with. Scott, maybe you can tell us. Um, uh, the secretary told me when I called him that how it works with the the state inspectors here and what they inspect as opposed to the uh, federal inspectors. Sure, I'd be happy to, to go over yeah. that. And, and, and just if I can back up a little bit, too, on what Julie was just talking about, there are clearly bottlenecks in the mm. state, but we have been working, and, and Julie and her team have been working, and our Agricultural Development Division have been working to address those. And we made some strides. As Julie mentioned, there's a lot more custom slaughterhouses, and pro, and slaughterhouses at least now than there used to be. And we're, we're continuing to work on that. The mobile unit is a possibility that we're anxious to explore if it, if it would be workable. But, but the other thing is the legislature and the, and the governor and our secretary have really supported increased funding uh, for some of these programs. And I think the pandemic 
helped to highlight the supply chain deficits of relying on a national and international system and the importance of having local food production. So this is this is all part of that bigger system. And we need to remember that Vermont is losing farmland. We're not just losing farms, we're losing farmland. In 1997, there were about 701,000 acres of farmland that were actively farmed in Vermont. 20 years later, and this is these numbers are from federal data, which is why they're dated as they are. But in 2017, there were 592,000 acres. That's 109,000 wow. lost acres in 20 years. So if we want Vermont to look like it does, and if we want our rural communities to be vibrant, and we want people to stay in Vermont, we need a mechanism for them to survive in Vermont and be profitable and to keep the land tilled. So having access, being able to raise animals, having access to slaughter and processing is really important. And we in our Working Lands Program, which is a terrific program that's mm-hmm. been in place for 10 years now, has had uh, very atypical amounts of money recently in a great way. We've had more money than, than typical. And last year... We awarded over $5 million, um, and that was appropriated from the legislature. And about, if I remember correctly, about $1.2 million at least went to meat processing and slaughter. And there are some farms that have been taking advantage of that. So so that's – we are working on it. There's a lot – there's a lot to be done. The governor has proposed $10 million in this year's budget Excellent. for maple, meat, and produce to increase their, our infrastructure in the state, and another $3 million for the Working Lands Program, which would go in part to meat processing. So if this is important to people, they really should be letting us know, letting their legislator know, because there are some initiatives to try to make it so that as somebody who wants to bring a goat to slaughter doesn't have to wait 11 months, which is something that folks have had to do. Uh, really? That mustn't be good for the age of the animal and I mean the older they get don't they get a little chewy <laughs> <laughs> that's when the jerky comes in exactly exactly <laughs> I, no, I love goat I whenever it's on the menu somewhere I eat it um, I had uh, talked about if you want to sell in state you guys do it if you want to sell out of state the feds do it is that what I'm I, I can Give the broad overview if you'd like. So, yeah. so the reality is the federal government has taken control of the entire meat um, meat program in the country. There's a couple of different acts that apply. There's a Federal Meat Inspection Act. There's a Poultry Products Inspection Act. And so the federal government is responsible for all of the meat that's transported, that's cut, processed, transported in the country. Huh. However, um, states can have their own program if they're approved and, or, and if you have a cooperative agreement with the federal government. And that's what we have, the state of Vermont. There's 27 states that have that cooperative program. What that means is that if you are a Vermont producer and you want to sell out of state, meaning in interstate commerce, then you have to be inspected by the federal government. If you want to sell, if you're a Vermont producer and you want to only sell your products in the state of Vermont or intrastate, then we perform the inspection services for those um, for those producers. There's also a little nuance to that as well. There's a cooperative agreement that allows some of the in-state inspected facilities to sell out of state so they can be in interstate commerce, but that's through our program. Julie oversees, Julie and our program oversees that. So that's a little bit of a nuance that was part of the 2018 Farm Bill. But, but basically speaking, if it's going in interstate commerce, it's the federal government who's overseeing it directly, although we help them do that. 
And then if it's in state, then it's the, then it's our own meat program that's, that's right. working on that. But the standards have to be the same. Everything that we do has to be at least as good as what the federal governments right. do. It's called equal to. And we, so we have to be doing the same standards, whether it's in state or out of state. Right. So when I, I travel <clears throat> around and I have some friends that live out in the middle of nowhere and you're driving and all of a sudden you see a farm and there's a, a sign that says sold here. And so when you go in, you should look for the sticker. Where where do you find the information about how the food was was inspected? So any product that, that you find in these smaller, um, you know, retail establishments or at a farmer's market, they should all have the mark of inspection. And here in Vermont, they could have the state mark of inspection or they would have the USDA mark of inspection. Right on the package. It meat. should be right there <coughs> on the actual okay. label, right in broad sight. So you should be able to see it. Um, you don't want to buy anything that says not for sale um, because that's just for personal use. Right. So just, just to assure that, that that label is there and that there is a mark of inspection on that <coughs> on that um, label. Um, one thing I just wanted to go back and what Steve was talking about, and with our cooperative agreement with the USDA, so we, all of our inspectors are um, able to go into not only our state inspected facilities, they're mandatory, any, any facility that is under inspection must have that mandatory inspection. Um, but our, for our cooperative agreement, our, our inspectors are trained to be able to um, go into these USD federal establishments, actually some of them that we cover as a full-time basis. Um, and whenever uh, and a federal um, inspector is on leave, vacation, whatnot, we are asked to go in and cover for them. And then to, to speak a little bit more about the, the uh, Cooperative Interstate Shipment Program, the CIS program that Steve also mentioned, this is fairly new for us. Uh, we were approved with this um, back in August of 2020 with our first establishment coming on board in the spring of 2021. And what this does is this actually allows these establishments to stay within our meat inspection program but actually function as a federal program. This gives them more opportunity to take this local product and, and bring it over Vermont borders. Um, it's a great program for anybody that, that still wants to stay small. There are requirements that are involved with this. Um, plants, uh, they cannot have more than 25 employees. They have other regulations that they have to adhere to. But And they also have to be a st in our state program for at least 90 days to even be, you know, recognized for um, this program. But it is another part of our, our meat inspection program that we can offer to these small establishments when they're just not ready to go completely under USDA. And also, because we have this cooperative agreement, you know, the new facilities do have a choice. When they do come on board, they have a choice to either come under our state inspection program or immediately go under the federal right. program. It's all about what their process is and, and what their demands are. Do they want to start selling product right out of the state immediately or do they want to come under us and then work with us where we give them a lot of guidance um, in the beginning, a lot of education and knowledge, and then later on move to a USDA grant right. of inspection? Do you, I bet neither one of you have enough staff. Can I guess that? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell from the reaction. Yeah. I'm sure because no. there are <clears throat> there are small farms all over this place and yes. nooks and crannies you don't even know they're there and they've got to be inspected if if they want to sell their the meat. So – Right. So any any uh, meat or or um, poultry product that is processed in the state that's going to be shipped out into commerce must go under 
um, inspection. But it's not only our, our, our food safety inspectors, they're in those slaughterhouses. We give them eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. Right. So that's one inspector full-time being in those slaughterhouses. Processing facilities, they don't have to be there quite as, mm-hmm. as long, but they still have to be there. Anytime the market inspection is being put on that product, our inspectors have to be there. But not only do we have inspected facilities, we also have the exempt facilities, our custom facilities. And like I mentioned before, we have 38, actually 39. We just signed one on last week. Um, and over 1,800 retail stores. Mm. So, yes, we are very busy. Our inspectors are <laughs> are very busy, our supervisors, and including myself. Um, you right. know, now, what do you there. look for in stores, um, how it's displayed, if it's – um, if it's separated, because um, they actually in like in Price Shopper where I go, the butchers are always there cutting up different cuts of meat for you. Sure, but you have to understand in the retail stores uh, as well, all that product has come from an inspected source. Okay, Either so was, yeah. then nothing after that is it's up to them to keep so, things clean. Right, and so ba- basically you want to make sure that their temperatures are are, are kept at a you know <clears throat> at a, at bay, so they we don't have to worry about any bacteria or pathogens right. of, of, of growth at that time, and that they're properly labeled and marked for right. Them. Um, safe handling statements as well. Handling, you know, any raw product um, needs to be refrigerated or frozen, and that has to be ideally on on the package. Yeah. That's always that's always a thing for me. Um, the the expiration date because um, you hear all different kinds of two days, three days, um, and um, freeze it or, or not. I always wish that was a little clearer. Um, for us consumers, that's my little concern. Because <laughs> getting sick from eating is not good. Food uh, response and getting sick from food is not a good thing. Exactly. That's why it always starts in the beginning with inspection. Right, exactly. Good for you. So um, I read somewhere that they're allowing an, I th- on-farm slaughtering. Is that what's happening these days or not? Sure. That's a... <laughs> it's a fascinating topic we could talk about for a long time. But the the baseline of that is the whole point of what Julie's team does is to ensure the safety of the meat that's sold. And, the fe- and that's what the federal law requires is that if meat is going to be sold to someone else, that it has to be inspected during slaughter and inspecting dur- during processing. There's an there's a exemption under federal law, which also applies to us, which allows farmers – to slaughter their own animals, process their own animals for them, for their households, for their non-paying guests. So essentially, if you're a farmer, you can raise your own animal, slaughter it, process it, eat it. You don't have to sign up with us. You don't get, you, you don't have any, you don't have to do anything with us as long as you're keeping it within your household. That worked through. I'm going to, I'm going to cut in like I warned you about before, but we have a break to take. Um, and then we're going to come back and talk about um, how this all works. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald back with Vermont Viewpoint and with my guest, Steve Collier, General Counsel for the Ag Division and uh, Julie Bovair, 
It's getting easier, Julie. I'm getting it down now. Uh, who is the chief of the meat inspection section of the agency? And if you want to talk and uh, call and talk to uh, my guests, the number here is two four four one seven seven seven. So um, we were chatting uh, while we were on break, and we were talking about who does duck and who does goose, and that falls that falls under the poultry rules and regs, and they don't touch wild game or fish. Right? That's, that's correct. Works for me. Because <laughs> you know? I know every once in a while the, the wayside has a perch, which I absolutely love. So, But it just comes from the water to the table. Right? Same, 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 same with us. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so I was looking up all these definitions about slaughterhouse versus processor. Could you explain maybe, Scott, if, what the difference is between what they do at a slaughterhouse without the graphics and, and, and a processor? How do they know what to, how many cuts of meat and what to do? Sure, Julie can answer that in a lot more oh, okay. detail than I can. But a slaughterhouse is basically um, terminating the animal, and a, and a processing plant is is getting it ready okay. for consumption. Okay, so it moves from the slaughterhouse to the processor with instructions from the farmer to a hundred uh, pounds of chopped meat, and it, it very it very well could. And a lot of times, though, the slaughterhouses will actually do that processing as well. But if I could just kind of go back a little bit and explain what our inspectors do at the slaughterhouse. For Without sure. going into any kind of graphics, because yeah. I don't want to ruin anybody's breakfast. <laughs> we um, get the picture. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. basically it all starts at what is called anti-mortem, and, and the inspectors are out there. They're looking at the live animals and just to, to, to assure that the animals are fit for, for slaughter. They have to still be healthy at this point. Um, they also oversee the humane handling that has taken place at the establishment. Then the inspector goes through and he, they look at the postmortem inspection. They're looking for any abnormalities that the that the carcass could have, and if and if it does, um, they ask the questions and they may actually even retain the animal and have our state veterinarian go in and do a disposition to assure that the the carcass is safe for consumption. Um, and then and after it goes through it, it the, and winds up in the cooler, there's still more that the inspector does. There's a lot of sanitation um, that, the, that the inspector goes through to assure that the equipment is sanitized. Um, they're keeping up with their operational sanitation. Floors are kept clean. Um, the hygiene is kept with, with the, the folks that are out there on the slaughter right. floor and even, even in the processing facility. Every facility has a um, written food safety plan that they have to hear by, and the inspectors know that food safety plan. They read it. They, they go through the, the record-keeping documentations and ensure that the, the um, establishment is doing what is required with that food safety plan and keeping up with the documentation that they need to. And then, of course, labeling at the end to assure that, that everything is labeled appropriately and the product goes out as a wholesome product for the consumer. That's great. That's really good to know. And just check for the label, right? Check for the what? what it's a stamp certified, inspected, some kind of stamp, it, or is it must it a... have um, an inspection legend, okay. whether it be a state inspection legend, okay. one of our um, state uh, facilities, or USDA inspection legend on that product. Okay. Anything else to could add to that? Well, I was just noting that I'd never be able to do the job that Julie just described because <laughs> my intention span lapses at about thirty seconds. Exactly. And what, and I like the end diligence. product, though. I'm a, I am I am a very big meat eater, and I know that's not necessarily the most healthiest thing to do. But uh, but then when you go to Maine, you I be I make it up by eating a lot of fish. So there you go. Um, so um, the difference between 
I was looking at some of the regulations and general categories between small and and large um, retailers and processors and um, how does the processor know we must work very closely with the farmer about what to produce what does what the farmers uh, customers would like x y and z types of meat so he must work very closely with the processor or do they just when they're preparing a, a cow um there's just so many cuts you can make and they do they just do that without any consultation so most of the time that, Is that a pro- good question well, i don't know well, how yes, do they and do I'll that see if i can answer this appropriately <laughs> but um so the producers when they're they're um, raising their animals and then they're bringing them to the slaughter they they will talk with with the slaughter facility and the processing facility to assure that they do get the cuts that they that they want and you know and and that's between the two of them and then and a lot of times that this the the producer um will receive everything in individual cuts right or, oh. or in ground beef as such and then they can take those individual uh cuts that have been inspected and passed and then bring them over to a retail store um and sometimes it's their own retail store um a lot of our small farmers do have um small freezers right. um refrigerators on their farm separate from their living quarters and that they are able to sell this meat to their their local um, neighbors that's and great. sell to the farmers markets. So transportation, like the woman I was talking about in Maine, that's got to be in a refrigerated truck, does it not? If they're driving two and a half hours, once they get everything processed, that's got to be a refri. That's another expense. I, I would say so, or yeah. or possible a lot of coolers with, yeah, right. with ice packs. That's a lot of coolers. <laughs> yeah, because she, uh, it's you have to buy this meat from her really early in June and July because by August it's everybody's bought it. I mean, it's so popular, it's incredible. That's great. And yeah. just and just kind of going back on that subject a little bit, too, that we always want to make sure that product is remains at a safe temperature. Yeah. And I was just reading about um, the regulations for labeling and inspection, and uh, it includes uh, such things as proper safe handling, which we talked about in sanitation. Um, transportation, that has to be, as you said, within a, a certain temperature. Um, yes, for correct. for getting the product out to the stores, but then you had deceptive practices. What is that? So this is where I wish our compliance officer was here right now because he's he, this is really his expertise on what he does when he goes out to the retail stores. But I can tell you, deceptive practices would be something like when you're looking at a meat case. And they could have like a red or a blue light that's like shining down on the meat oh. to make it look like it's um, really fresh right. when actually it's it's really not. Right. Um, or they have cut some meat that they're not labeling correctly, or maybe they have some bones that's underneath the meat that's oh, that, that you can't actually mm. see. So that's kind of like I think what deceptive yeah. meat would would yeah. That's to. when you look at chopped meat. Sometimes the outside is. May I say the word brown? It's it's looks like it's been there too long. And then you open it up and it's it's red inside. And I usually pass on those kind of um, purchases. Um, but it also talked about uh, fat and lean claims. That um, where do you find out the fat and lean amount? Is that on the label itself or? Yeah, so a lot of our, our stores, some of our bigger processors, they will have these claims on their ground beef with the fat and lean. Oh, we had 95. Claim. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. right. I got it. So if they do have that, they have to support that. And right. in order to support that, they have to test that ground beef to assure that it does comply with that fat and, and lean. Right, claim and that, that, that makes sense to me because I only buy um, uh, meat with a certain percentage of uh, 
uh, whether it's what 95, 80%, whatever the breakdown is. Interesting. I think That's the whole, one. if I can just jump in, Pat, I think the whole point of the deceptive practices and what we're talking about is there's two components, right? One is to make sure that the meat is safe to eat. Right. The other is to make sure that consumers are actually getting what they're paying for. So that's that's a piece of it. And these it? days, that's more important than it used to be, sort of. It you certainly know? can be, yeah. Because if you're paying $28 for whatever, that's a lot of money. You want to make sure you've got the healthy and a good, a good cut of meat. So we all hear about them as we're talking. Out west, sometimes you hear about mad cow disease and... Else, we have, have we, we've never had any problem like that over the years here in Vermont, have we? Or have we? I don't think so. Not, not under my watch, we yeah. haven't. Um, but this also goes back to the anti-mortem, um, with our inspectors, you know, looking at those animals at rest and, and, yeah. and, and in motion and checking them. And, and if there is any problems, again, they will, they will call the state veterinarian. Oh, great. And do we have a a lot of large animal vets in Vermont? I don't, I thought at some point that was a problem as well. We could certainly use more, but I want to also say for the record, I knocked on wood after you brought up mad cow disease. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Well, because I think it's hard to detect, right? I mean, it's, um, it's not the easiest thing to detect. We, just on that note, Pat, we, we, so Julie's program works on meat inspection and keeping the safety of meat, but we have a food safety consumer protection division and we have three veterinarians on staff. We have a state veterinarian and two assistant state veterinarians and there's a separate program that works on livestock movement, poultry movement and the, the point of the, the genesis or the, uh, the purview of that program is to ensure that animals are not that animals are not diseased, or if they are diseased, that they can be tracked back and right. determine how to handle it. Right. Including recently with the avian influenza, high ah. avian influenza. So there, Julie works with that team. That's part of the same team, but there's sort of different components with the animal movement itself, and and disease minimization is a huge piece of what they do. Right. Then meat inspection is is kind of after the animals have moved. Um, making sure that the product itself is safe to eat. Right. Now I notice there's a lot of regulations around chopped meat. Uh, when, when you're, when you're making chopped meat for hamburger or, or meatloaf or whatever. Um, why is that more regulated or did I just sort of see a lot of, uh, reports and misunderstood? But it's not, it looked to me like it was a little more regulated than other, um, handling of other meats. Well, one thing about ground beef, and, and this goes back to our inspected facilities, um, there's regulations around the ground beef. Um, they can tend to be commingled with other animals. It may not just be one specific animal that it's being ground. Um, and so, and also when you, when you see the process of, of ground beef, it's going through several processes of, of being ground, and that, that actually warms up the meat, so we have to be careful that that it doesn't, the pathogens of concern, which is E. coli 0157H7 and salmonella, that doesn't contribute to, um, you know, people getting sick. And so we we do a lot of testing in our establishments. Uh, We send out the ground beef um, to be analyzed for E. coli and um, salmonella on a regular basis. Sounds like we're in good hands, folks. So um, I want to talk about specialty meats and poultry. Uh, For example, smoking. Smoked meats are my favorite thing in the world um prosciutto um plus i mean how do you how do you regulate that uh do you get involved with the processing of the specialty meats sure so we do have quite a few establishments out there that actually produce this product under inspection 
which is great. So that you know they can sell to most of the grocery stores and and you know the farmers markets as well. Um, they they have a different you know a, a more rigorous um, inspection program that they have to follow formulations and and so forth. Um, we call it the heat treated, not shelf stable. Um, program. <laughs> you say that again slowly. The heat what? Sure, it's, it's the heat treated, not shelf stable product. Oh, there um, you go. Yes, of course. When you're talking about charcuterie, then of course that right. that's more of a shelf stable product, and our and beef jerky is, right. is as well. That's great. There's just so many, um, so many things to to eat here in Vermont, made in Vermont. Absolutely. That's so cool. So I know Scott, you wanted to talk about something that is very important. Stepping back a little bit to the bigger picture of um, how it all works and how important agriculture is to Vermont, and I hope we never lose sight of that. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I I, I really think that. Most Vermonters don't understand how important our farmers are to to Vermont as it is. We are a rural state uh, in New England. We're really arguably the only true agricultural state left in New England, and I'm sure some of our um, sister states would disagree with that. But, <laughs> but the reality is Vermont's a rural state surrounded by big population centers, and we are a rural state that's dynamic, and we have farms that do feed us. We are there's a there's a plan now to try to get uh, more and more local food consumption that's been spearheaded by the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund and, and others. But at last count, if I remember correctly, we're producing in New England now about 20 percent of the food that we eat. And that's up from about 6 percent. And my numbers may be a little bit off, but up from about 6 percent 10 or 15 years ago. So there has been a push to try to get more local food production and consumption If we don't do that, we're not going to have the Vermont that we all know and love now. It is cheaper to produce a lot of food in California or in Texas or in other places that have huge farms that serve a very important purpose, but they're not the same thing as the family farms that we've all come uh, grown accustomed to and love in Vermont. Those family farms not only feed us, but they also bring tourists. They bring incredible economic opportunity to our rural communities. And without them, we're going to become a, a, a different state. And that's right. either going to be a state of second homes or of subdivisions or of something other than what it is. And so if you if if you're out there and you want to keep Vermont the way it is, it's really important to go to your local farm, to buy, to look for local, to go to your farmers markets. We're, we've been encouraging for for years uh, farmers to diversify, and they're doing that in incredible ways. It's very difficult to be, you know, most of Vermont agriculture has been dairy for a long time. The year I was born, there were over 4,000 dairy farms in Vermont. Today, there's about 527 cow dairies. The dairy industry is incredibly important to Vermont because it manages about 80% of the farmland in Vermont, and it brings in something like 70% of the agricultural revenue. It's, it's, it has to be a continued a viable part of Vermont, but we need more. And, and our secretary has been adamant that we, our agency supports all forms of agriculture, but we can't, we can't do that without Vermonters doing it as well. Right. And to keep land active and productive is really important because f- our farmers are aging. The new generation, most of the new generation is not necessarily willing to work as hard as our farmers work. And so unless we have new opportunities on farms, unless we have people supporting our local farms, we're going to become a very different place. And I don't think most of us who live here live here to have it be a different place. We want to preserve 
what what is so wonderful about Vermont that we have, and a lot of that comes right back to the family farm. Right. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. That's a wonderful um, thing that you said, and people need to remember we've got to support our local farmers. Um, I just get a big kick out of buying local. Um, I make it my business mostly um, like at Christmas and holidays to buy local when I can't just don't don't do the Internet. I, I cheat every once in a while, <laughs> but I try. But anyway, um, I think just it just tastes better. And when I go to a restaurant, there's one in Waitsfield where you read on the menu eggs from you know Joe's Joe's Poultry Farm down there. I may not know Joe's Poultry Farm, but it makes me feel great because it's fresh. It's um, tastes grown, better. Yeah, exactly. And you're it tastes also better. meeting the farmer that produced it. Exactly, and that's a huge deal. Exactly, because there's some they face between runoff and milk prices and whatever else. There's always a pressure of some kind, and that equipment that they buy is not cheap. No, you know the John Deere, the John Deere farm. I mean, that is just a lot of money. Um, so, um, can we talk about cows for a second? <laughs> what, what, you know the cow you see on the on the hillside. I always think that we, for tourists we sort of place them on the hillside to have that that view of Vermont, which is the farmland. <laughs> There's that cow again. You're not supposed to say that out loud. <laughs> no, I know, but I, I, I love them. But what what's the um, most common type of cow that's here in Vermont? Because we have those uh, or the ones with the broadband black in the middle of them and Holsteins um, are the are Holsteins. the most common. I, the, I was uh, going to say Holsteins. Yeah. Um, for the meat industry, I would want to say Angus, um, but I I don't want to put anybody under the bus either because no, I, but know, we love them all. Like I say, I'm we're in the meat industry, so right. yeah, the actual. So, are you guys busy with the Big E? Uh, Julie and I don't do a lot with the Big E ourselves, oh. but our agency absolutely does. I bet does. they're going they crazy were, right now. They were incredibly dynamic. This list last year, if I remember correctly, they basically got back to pre-pandemic levels. Good. Yeah, I've, I've only been there sadly once uh, quite a while ago. Um, but that's a big investment for farmers to go down to the Big E and show their livestock and, and be part of it. Almost as great as the Tunbridge World I, Fair. I was just going to say that. That is, that is my ultimate favorite fair to go to, to, to see yeah. the animals. When my husband and I, we were, got married, we were on a honeymoon, we rushed back on, I'm on the back of Bruce's motorcycle in pouring rain. Do you have a get, picture of that? To, no, I don't. <laughs> to get to the last day of the Tunbridge Fair because I, you can't miss the Tunbridge Fair. Yeah. And when they say, uh, what does it say? Oh, something about the world, and I think they mean their world. But it's very <laughs> unique. It's the World's Fair. That's great. So um, we're pretty much winding up. Anything you want to encourage people to do just besides supporting our farmers and things coming up that maybe you could give them a tease about what we're going to be talking about the next time you're on this show? Uh, sh- sure. I, I think the the initiatives to continue to help uh, meat processing and to support those initiatives, if, if you believe in that, if you encourage that, it can make a real difference to reach out to your legislator or us to let them know. I mentioned earlier in the show that the governor has proposed $10 million for infrastructure improvements, another $3 million for working lands. Our, the agricultural committees in the House and the Senate are absolute proponents of, of responsible and agriculture in Vermont. There are ways there are so many pressures on farmers, as you mentioned, Pat, and, and including working to, to be environmental stewards of the land. And, and we have to recognize, I think, as Vermonters, that the, the need f- food is something we all need. Food, water, shelter. And love and want, may I well, that- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too much. 
So yeah. we either we either grow that here and we benefit from it, or we import it from somewhere else, which has its own agri- its own environmental yeah. costs. So we really need to find a pathway to balance the environmental and the agricultural needs, and we can do that in the state of Vermont. But I think yeah. we need to be talking more about how to do that collectively rather than pointing fingers. Our farmers are doing great work, and and including in protecting the environment. And That's so great. we really need to understand how to how to work together to accomplish those objectives. And all of this work with a hundred. 147, is that what you told me, employees in your division? We, we have about 140 in the agency, yeah. That's yeah. not too many people. That's a <laughs> no, lot of work no. on your plate. So, uh, and I may know. I just add under meat inspection, there's nine food safety inspectors that are wow. doing this incredible work out there. Well, thank you all for the work you do because it's important that our uh, food chain stay the, just the way it is. So thank you very much, both of you. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Stay tuned because I have Matt Coda, who is the executive director for the Vermont Fuel Dealers Association, and we're talking about the clean heat standard. See you. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and I have with me Matt Coda from the Vermont Fuel Dealers Association, and your title is? So uh, my company is called Meadow Hill, and I'm a lobbyist, and I work in the State House, and one of my clients is the Vermont Fuel Dealers Association, which is a nonprofit trade association of heating oil and propane providers. That's great. So you really, that's great, because you also have Vermont Automobile Association, VEDA. Yeah, and a couple others. And a couple others. Oh, wait, excellent. You'll have to tell me that. That's sure. exciting, because this is sort of a new a new venture. Yeah, well, I've, I've been working inside the State House first as a reporter, and then as an advocate for 19 different legislative sessions. Wow. So um, I, I enjoy it very much, wow. yeah. and I enjoy discussing the issue. I love talking about policy, and that's a great place to be if you like that those things. Well, and you're very well respected, which goes a long way with the legislature when you're testifying. They actually pay attention, I would think. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are some, perhaps not, but um, I know in your case that you're well respected. And I'm always calling you in. You've been on this show and the TV show more than once. Yeah, have fun. You know, yeah, it's cool. So can you talk about, you sort of did, but can you talk a little bit about your, I like the TV experience you had. That always, I always feel comfortable when you're on a show because I know you you can talk through anything. <laughs> yeah, as they say, as the producer used to say in my ear, Matt, stretch, stretch, keep talking. <laughs> well, we got a lot to talk about, so I'll just be brief. Um, started out as a reporter, a journalist in WPTZ, where yeah. Stuart Ledbetter hired me back in 1996. And as luck would have it, I was the first one to raise my hand when they said, we need a political reporter. So I was a 22-year-old political reporter for WPTZ in Montpelier. Mm-hmm. And then I went off to California and was a reporter out there, only decided to come back to Vermont to raise my children. I'm oh. glad I did it. Do you know how many, this is a whole different conversation, but how many people I have interviewed who said they went away and then came back here to raise their family? If I was the state, I would be promoting that family concept about why you should move back here because it's a great place to raise kids. I'll, I'll tell the Chamber of Commerce. That's a no, great idea. Seriously, they, they miss their opportunity all the time. But I have heard that from everybody, the, the gentleman that was here before. He hmm. said the same thing. So um, we are here today to talk about Vermont's Clean Heat Standard Bill, and I'll bet you'll want to call in. So the phone number is 244-1777. Um, can you summarize? Somebody just said, what did he call it? Uh, Dick McCormick called it a Rube Goldberg uh, in the press. I loved it. From Dick McCormick, no less. But anyway, can you summarize this 
bill? Well, this this can be this can be this is a very interesting policy, right? It I've I've described it for the last two years as the most significant regulation of the thermal sector, the heating fuel sector that has ever been contemplated anywhere. It hasn't been done for heating uh-huh. oil and propane. Anywhere in the United States. Are we the first again? We're, we're the first. I'm so, so proud of us. So this is the bill that failed last year because Governor Scott vetoed it, and it was that veto was sustained by one vote, which means it didn't become law. Well, right. it's back. Yep. Um, we, we knew it would come back. It's come back slightly worse than it was last year, so it's still <laughs> bad. The basic concept, and has always been the concept since it was invented about two years ago, is to require fuel companies to sell less product to their customer – and if they don't, they'll have to pay their competition to do it for them. That's, Whoa, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be dense. Could you do that again? So the idea is is to require heating fuel companies to sell less heating fuel or else pay their competition to do it for them. So in other words, the idea behind the Global Warming Solutions Act is a dramatic reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in Vermont. And one of the ways to do that is to get people to use – lower carbon fuels to heat their home. So you can do that. You can do that with electric heat pumps. You can do that with wood. You can do that with biofuels and renewable natural gas and renewable propane. Those are significant investments that both the uh, consumer and the and the seller and the installer have to make. And so the idea is those that want to still sell fossil fuels, you're going to have to pay, which means your customers are going to have to pay right. to keep using them. And it is in many ways a convoluted carbon tax, and those that are well-structured in order to deliver these services um, will benefit. Those that are not, the vast majority of heating oil and propane comes from small, second, third-generation family-owned companies, and they're the ones being squeezed. They're the ones that are going to have to charge. We don't know if it will be $0.70 cents a gallon. Some predictions are $4 a gallon. Whoa. We don't know what it will cost because the legislature does not cap it and they don't define it. That's one of the things that we asked for. We said, listen, we've been taxed. We've been fee- we have fees on our product. It, will, it has always been that way. It will always be that way. That's just the way of life when you do business, especially in Vermont. <laughs> How about you set a number? How about you tell us so we have some predictability on how we set prices, on how how much the customer has to pay, and so that you have a a revenue stream which is predictable. Instead, they're going to create a credit marketplace like you might find at the New York Mercantile Exchange or the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange in which buyers and sellers of credits will will bid up and bid down these these obligations – in this marketplace, it costs a million dollars just to build the software platform. That's not even costing the, count, the cost of the credits, never mind the cost of compliance. My big concern on behalf of the members of Vermont Fuel Dealers Association, again, small family-owned companies where the name on the side of the truck is the person driving the truck. Right. That those Vermont companies will, in fact, have – will be identified quite clearly because – they're there. They're there. They live in our communities. They work in our communities. Mm. But the trucks that so easily pass over our borders from New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and New York are perhaps not so identified as being members of the community. And if there is a seventy cents per gallon difference, if there's a four dollar per gallon difference, do you think the consumer is going right. to check to see whether or not they met their obligation with the Public Utility Commission? I doubt it. Right. Just fill it up. So the reality is, is what this complicated, convoluted carbon tax does is it creates incentives for consumers to seek fuel from outside of the state. And that is a problem. It's a problem because we should support our local family fuel dealers. And, and they don't – it's not 
this message isn't getting through to them? I don't, I don't understand this. Just what you just said right now, I'd be voting no for sure. Well, I think some people are recognizing, especially low-income advocates, environmental justice advocates, that this is a system that will drive out competition and drive up prices. Yeah, and And impact impact the low-income people. And they're starting to see the cracks in this policy. Because when Dick McCormick, who's a legislator from Windsor, and I just said that before, he was quoted as saying this bill is a real Rube Goldberg. And for those of you who may not know that expression – Since I'm from New York, I know what it means. It means taking something that should be very simple and making it as complex as you possibly can just to either confuse the issue or whatever. But this is a very complex and the opponents of this bill have spared no expense at the how that what they're calling this bill. I mean, I've heard some dandy things from people. Well, this is a really interesting, you know, normally it's, you know, there's Democrats and there's Republicans, right? Right. This is an interesting coalition. In my 19 years of walking the halls of the State House, I've never quite seen anything like this. We've got environmental justice advocates, um, environmental uh, um, um, people that really want to dedicate right. to, to, to resolving climate change, and, and we've got fiscal conservatives aligned on this. We've got the small family-owned fuel dealers, the ones that have been in their communities for 100 years that contribute to theirs. They're against it. But the largest fossil fuel companies are for it, working with some of the environmental organizations that have been participating in this process. I've never seen an issue that is so divisive and has has created such – they say politi- – what's the phrase? Politics creates strange bedfellows. Right. This is certainly this is one it. of them. Wow. Um, and because the big guys could outbid the – the little guys, this isn't hard to figure out. So, we're, so for those of you who hate big corporations, maybe you shouldn't like this bill. Yeah, there's a lot of things to hate about this yeah. bill, but but number one is the mm-hmm. fact that it's it is promising something that cannot be delivered. For instance, there is a real concern about equity, and there should be. Right. Low income Vermonters, how are they able to reduce their energy burden? Right. So. Low-income Vermonters who use kerosene, those are modular homes. These are mobile homes, right? They can't easily switch to biodiesel. They can't easily switch to electric heat pumps. Why? Because all these mobile homes have underwater, have pipes for their water running underneath their mobile homes, and that those will freeze if they just have warm air that's blowing up up near the ceiling. Um, they also, a lot of these mobile home parks, they have 40 amp service. Now, what that means is that they can only plug in so many things before the lights go out. Uh, same with some of the yep. older farmhouses that some of our seniors right. live in, that my grandmother lives in, my parents live in, which is built prior to 1960. In that situation, you can't plug in an EV charger right. and an electric stove and a, and a heat pump. The, the, the lights will go out. So there is significant investment that have to be made into not where the electricity comes from. That's another whole conversation. But the, in fact, the homes and where are these homes that have 40 amp service, 100 amp service that cannot accommodate the equipment that the um, that the lobbyists that want this have it? They're in low income communities, right? And that's being overlooked. And quite frankly, they're going to be squeezed by higher prices for kerosene. They're not going to have the ability to make a transition. And who's going to benefit? Right, right back to the big guys. Yeah. I am very surprised by this conversation because if there's any state that focuses on low-income families and trying to give them as much support, it's Vermont and why they don't see the impact here. I mean, I was laughing when you said RV. We have an RV, and if I put the air conditioner and the microwave on at the same time, 
everything stops, comes to a dead halt. And, when, and re- when, you, when you plug in your electric vehicle and your <laughs> heat pump, what happens then? <laughs> oh, well, we're not, we don't have an Although when we moved into our home in, in Berlin, it was all electric. I think Bruce had that taken out within two days. We had a System 2000 put in back yes, then. Yes, Energy Kinetics. Yes. yes Yellow yeah. Jacket, great product. <laughs> exactly. I'm here with Matt Cota, um, who is, um, what do you, can I say lobbyist? I'm a lobbyist. I'm an advocate. Advocate. Oh, I like that. I like that. Advocate for the Vermont Fuel Dealers Association. And we are talking about a clean heat standard, which is the new words for the new bill. bill. It is a bill of many names. It's Senate Bill Number 5. It's been called the Clean Heat Standard. It's been called the Affordable Heat Act. It's been called the Unaffordable Heat Act by by most people who actually dig into the details. Yeah, This is ridiculous to even be here. May I just say that? Anyway, I was was hoping that we could just go back a little bit uh, to talk about the Global Warming Solutions Act, which actually has set some standards, 40% reduction by 2030 fossil fuels and net zero by 2050. Fortunately, I won't be here. I doubt it. But go ahead. Talk. Can you talk a little bit about this? This is what got it all started, right? Well, that's right. So in 2020, the Vermont legislature passed the Global Warming Solutions Act. It was vetoed by Governor Scott. Um, one of the reasons that he said he vetoed it is because um, it creates an opportunity for anyone to sue the state of Vermont if they fail to meet these emission goals. Right. What, I'm sorry. I have to. What's that the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard them do? That they gave permission for citizens to sue the state, which is unheard of, if they don't meet their goals. What is that? Sorry. Well, so You're it was, looking at me strangely, but, but who thinks these things up? I, uh, well... Oh, go ahead. Uh, Who do I know to tell? <laughs> so Governor Scott vetoed this. However, his veto was overridden by the legislature that wanted to create this. That created a climate council. The climate council is 23 individuals um, representing the electric utilities, representing environmental organizations that, that basically coalesce behind the ideas that the way that we meet the mandates of the Global Warming Solutions Act and we don't get sued – is we electrify everything. We make sure all of our power comes from renewable resources and we make sure all our cars and our, or most of our cars and, and most of our thermal needs, our heat is provided by electricity, which is, by the way, um, now you're too young for this, Pat, but there was a time <laughs> right. when we thought that everything would be electric. There was a time when we thought that it, we were going to have uh, power that was too cheap to meter thanks to the wonderful atom and, and nuclear power. Right. Um, and that we, and that, that there was an aggressive effort in the 60s and 70s, to install electric resistance heat. Now, we all know that that all came out because it was too expensive. It required more poles and wires and more power than we thought. And in went uh, new, more modern heating systems than than went out in the first time. So um, that was the growth, really, of of propane and heating oil and natural gas was to replace this, this misgotten idea that we actually can provide electric heat. Now, we have better electric heat systems, absolutely. Many of our members installed them because they provide air conditioning. They're ductless mini splits, air conditioning in the summer, and they provide take the chill off in the spring and in the fall, but they don't replace. You often hear this word switch, switch, switch. There's no switching going on. It's additive, right? So you're adding it up, just like you would add a, a pellet stove because you want to take the chill off in the uh, the den or the kitchen. Right. Um, uh, heat pumps do great work providing air conditioning and taking the chill off in, in the fall, in the spring, but no one no one gets rid of their furnace or their boiler. The thing in the basement that runs on fuel or propane or kerosene that 
that provides the hot air or the hot water that you need in order to make sure that your home is warm during the middle of the winter when temperatures dip in the single digits. Those don't go away. And why don't they go away? When they do go away, what happens? Well, you have all these pipes, whether it's their, their pipes for, for showers or for, for your kitchen, or if they're hydronically heated, as most homes in Vermont are, a boiler that sends water circulating throughout right. the house. If those freeze, we all know what happens. Water expands. Right. Those copper or plastic pipes then pop, and then when they thaw, you've got water damage throughout your house, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 to fix. Right. That's why people give fuel dealers the keys to their home when they go take a week vacation in Florida because they know if their house freezes, they need someone in there right. to unfreeze them or else they're looking at thousands of dollars in damages. So that's why any fuel dealer says, I'll install heat pumps. You'll you'll buy less heating oil and, and propane, but you won't buy you won't buy zero. Don't lose your tank. Don't lose your furnace. See how it goes. Right. And those that say, I trust them because they've been in this town I see them at the grocery store, and they've been selling fuel for, uh, for me and their father before them and their mother before that. I trust them, and they are very happy to get through the winter. Those that say, nope, I read on the internet, <laughs> you can just use this, they're the ones that end up with thousands of dollars of damage. Well, well that's a somber note. Yeah. That's, yeah. We actually, when we went away one time, we were gone for quite a while. We had a light in the house that turned red depending on where the heat was up or down. So we had a neighbor assigned to watching the color of the, of the bulb. That is very clever. Yes. I and like so that. they would know to call and get it, get it, uh, inspected. Something was wrong if it got red. So anyway, um, so that started back, uh, back in 2020. And each year we're just sort of slowly trying to inch towards that, uh, um, that those goals. Um, and where is the bill currently? Because I know it was in markup last week. Yeah. So, so this is how it happens, as you as you know. It starts with the committee of jurisdiction, right. which is the Senate Natural Resources Committee. It's there's no question um, that it's going to come out of that committee probably tomorrow, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, and then it will go to House appropriate, excuse me, Senate Appropriations Committee. Because remember, it takes money to create this. It's going to take $1.2 million just in consultant fees and salaries just to think about how to create this. So we're going to spend a million point two of our taxpayer money figuring out how to design it. If they create a credit marketplace, they're going to have to spend another million dollars designing this trading platform in which the big companies and the little companies will have to enter this online marketplace and buy and sell credits. I know. I know you're looking at me like, how is that going to work? I'm sorry. No one quite knows. No. And, and, and they and, still can't give us a total cost. And, just... and then and then we have to the other costs, right? So then there's the enforcement costs. Right. Remember, this is not like electrical power where the electric utilities walk in willingly with their lawyers and consultants into the Public Utility Commission because they are guaranteed a rate of return on their capital investment. That's the deal we set up. They get a monopoly. They get exclusivity. The PUC controls their rates. So, and they know where those poles and wires are and they know where those offices are. When we ask the Public Utility Commission, do you know who sells fuel in Vermont? How much fuel they sell? No, no. How would you enforce this unless you had someone with a truck with a, with, with lights on it and, and guns and badges? We, we, we don't know. We're just hoping that they just come in and volunteer. So you're hoping that they come in from New Hampshire and volunteer and write you a check to help put them out of business. Is that, is that how you, how it's going to work? That's the philosophy behind right. this this legislation. Are there better ways to help reduce consumption? Yes. We, in fact, we have a model. It was started in the 1990. It's called the fuel tax. It creates money. It's a it's a tax on a gallon of heating oil, a gallon of propane. It goes into the Office of Economic Opportunity, 
who uses that money to help the community action programs, Capstone, Zepka, Brock, the rest of them, help weatherize, make low-income Vermonters' homes safe, comfortable, and warm. Weatherize, install heat pumps if necessary, clean and tune the the fossil fuel-burning appliance. That program works really, really well. It's only two cents a gallon. There have been discussions about making it more, but before we enter into a world where we don't know if the cost of heating oil is going to go up 70 cents or $4 a gallon, how about we just focus on programs that work rather than invent programs that the largest fossil fuels support, fossil fuel providers in Vermont support, but the smallest ones know the truth because they're on the ground, they're on the grocery store, they're in their customers' kitchens, they're in their customers' basements, they're outside, they understand this will not work. Right. But we're moving forward, yes. aren't we? Because yep. it's a good plan. Excellent. I'm, I'm, look, I'm staring at Matt like a deer in headlight, not believing half of this stuff. I've actually read it, and we've, I've, I've listened to some of the committee discussions, and it's very hard for those of us who are not quite into the fuel dealer association and what they do um, to really under- grasp the whole uh, concept of this thing because it, it seems like a um, – just a, a pipe dream of some kind. And, and, it's, and quite frankly, Pat, it's not just – and you've served in the legislature. You know yep. this. It's not just the public that is unaware of yeah. it be, because you know you might get one or two articles written and not right. everyone reads that and so on and so forth. But as a legislator, you've got your own committee assignments. Right. You've got your own priorities and that's the way it should be, right? right. So you're reliant on the committee of jurisdiction to give you right. good information about what to vote for. So that's why I've said to everyone, if you if you care about this this legislation, um, it don't assume that your state senator knows what it even does. Exactly. So so contact them and let yep. them know yep. that this could this will increase my cost of heating my home by $500 or or thousand yeah, dollars. We well, don't know the answer yeah. yet, and until we know the answer, they certainly shouldn't vote for it. Well, I was uh, there's as you just mentioned. There's so many opponents to this bill, um, and you also mentioned um, the Public Utility Commission. Will they have the same oversight that they have now? Are they going to be in the trenches here, um, doing the same work? To because you just said they don't know how, but well, yeah, they're going the, to be charged with it. The idea is the Public Utility Commission, which is an entity that is established to set our electric rates, right? right. So they they are in charge of making sure that that electricity keeps flowing, that the electric companies will come in and they say, we our capital costs are this, we think our our our, our compensation should be that, and they review the, the books and they determine whether or not that is adequate and they and that's what how we pay our rates. Used to be back in the old days, under you probably don't remember because you're too young, but 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 the legislature <laughs> yeah. used to actually set the electric rates. Oh that, and then I, under, I don't remember that. And then under Senator uh, excuse me, Governor Snelling yep. decided nope. Yep. We need to create a public utility commission. My old friend Dick Sodix was one of the first to start oh, that. Oh yes, I know Dick. And, and that's how we created a more a better way of establishing rates. And for the utilities benefit, um, which makes sense, to create a, a a understanding of how they are compensated for the capital investment they have to make in poles and wires and right. power plants and, and make sure that they get a return on their investment. This this thing is all sticks and no carrots. There is no guarantee that a fuel company that buys themselves a truckload of heat pumps or a, a bucket truck full of wood pellets will ever see a return on their investment. So they're required to do this, but the PUC isn't going to bail them out as they do in other situations huh. if, in fact, they can't make payroll. 
And who's um, who does the PUC report into? Is there any oversight? Are they one of those things we've let free and live free and die or whatever so with we, no oversight? So we have three commissioners, and they're appointed um, by, the governor, by the governor, but it goes to go through the judicial nominating board, right. which is how we establish uh, all sorts of different okay. uh, positions. So government. there is sort of an oversight, not like the Green Mountain Care Board and other things we've done over the years. Well, I won't comment on that. <laughs> it's, it's not my expertise. <laughs> no, 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 but, they, but they're a standalone. Right. They don't report into anybody. Right. Yeah, it's the same okay. thing with Vermont Yankee. That was another thing. I remember that stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, there is also an equity advisory group, which obviously they know this could have impact on low-income people and minorities and people that uh, are struggling, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole idea is if, if you can afford to spend $20,000 to put in three or four compressors in your average 2,200-square-foot home, right, yep. you're going to do well. But – for most Vermonters, they can't make that upfront investment, and that's what the Equity Advisory Group is going to study. This is not an upbeat show. May I just mention that? Well, we could change topics. No, I'd no, be happy to talk no, about no, anything no. you want. I Pat. want people to understand this because they've got to call, and their legislators now just focus on the senators for now. Yeah, this will probably come up for a vote on the Senate floor March 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, that Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday before the Senate goes home for town meeting. Um, it's possible it could come after town meeting, but I suspect it's on the trajectory in which um, uh, the Senate, all 30 senators, will get to decide whether they think this is a, a good idea um, and if it if it if it's likely to pass the Senate. And then it will go over to the House and they'll make some changes and to it, and then uh, that's how the process works. I just hope they listen to people. There are so many opponents to this in the state house, and they're they are not mincing words. I'm actually been surprised by some of the comments because they've been right in your face. And and like I said, it's it's not your. It's a really interesting coalition, both for and against this. I think probably because it's one of the more consequential energy policies we've ever had. Think right. of the the big touchstones in energy policy, whether we're talking about the renewable energy standard, which required utilities to buy certain amounts of renewable electric power, or whether we're talking about the um, um, the different uh, expansions of the natural gas pipeline. Like this is the next iteration of it. It's the iteration of let's move all of our heating or, or most heating as we can to electric heat. And in doing so, how do we accommodate that? Well, one of the ways that it is happening, irregardless of what passed out of the Senate or House this year, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. So oh. this did not – we didn't know this last year, right? When we passed the – when the legislature passed the clean heat standard last year, we didn't know that coming down the pike was this Inflation Reduction Act, which will provide a significant amount of funds for the type of things that – in fact, many of the energy policy leaders in Vermont want. Right. Um, the idea that we need this bill in order to put that money on the street is nonsensical. It's right. already right. happening. It's, yeah. Most fuel dealers, of the members of the Vermont Fuel Dealers Association, install heat pumps. It makes perfect sense. Why? Because their drivers and their technicians have summertime, and that's a great way to fill that time. People want air conditioning in the summer. They install the heat pumps. They're so much better and more efficient and quieter than those window rattlers that everyone's used to. Um, those go out. Um, income the heat pumps. They take the chill off in, in the spring and the fall, and fuel dealers are the ones installing them. Yep. Vermont fuel dealers. Vermont maybe. fuel dealers. And then there are also ones explaining to them that despite what you read on the interwebs, don't get rid of your oil. Don't right. get rid of your propane. Hold on to it. Yep. It'll be back, maybe. Because <laughs> uh, once you go down that road, it is hard to 
come back, isn't it? I mean, that'd be more expensive to go back. Well, that's the fear, right? So the fear is, is that we create a complicated and convoluted carbon tax that in fact puts these small mom and pops out of business, driving out competition, driving up prices. And, and then once that happens, once the little companies say, you know what? I can't compete. Here are my keys. Right. I, I can't do it anymore. I don't have a younger generation that is going to fill my role. They see what I do. I work 18 hour days in January. They don't want to do that. No. So I guess it's over. And then once that happens and then once we come to the recognition, oh, I guess we actually did need oil, heat and propane still, they're not coming back. No, right. And that's a problem. It's, it's, it's a problem for choice for the consumer, but it's a problem for the community. If we lose that connection to local family businesses in our small towns, we're losing a lot. I know it's easy to buy something on, on the internet, but when you buy local – when you buy from your local family fuel dealer, when you buy from your local car dealer, you are supporting your community because they are supporting the employees that are part of that community. And yes, it's so easy to click, 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 and it shows up at your doorstep. But think about what we're doing to our state when right. that's when we what, that's what we want to do. Well, we just had the agricultural um, agency on before you, and we were talking buy local, help the farmers. Same concept. We have to protect Vermont. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is why we're here because we love it. Um, and I'm, um, I, I, there's a couple of things that are in the bill that I thought we could talk about. Um, just, um, the thing you, and you mentioned a tradable credit system. What is that and how will it work? It sounds like st- stock market 101. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, this is, this is another thing that really scares me about the bill. You know, I, I brought in uh, a couple Fridays ago um, a man named Tony James who um, who bought a company from his father Stephen in Bell's Falls and and Tony's one of those uh, guys he came he came in in his work boots and his calloused hands and and you know he 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 you know drops his G's when he tells you he's coming or going but 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 <laughs> but, but, but Tony is brilliant he can install a heat pump blindfolded he could tear apart your boiler wow. uh, in the middle of the night and assemble it again he can also back a 12 ton truck up an icy road and and he was there to explain to them that when this time to come and buy credits in January when it's time to play in the stock market he's their truck driver and he's their technician and his wife, Diana, is in the office trying to make sure that everything is held down. Right. He doesn't have time to compete with the likes of big corporate foreign entities that are buying and selling credits on this new market that we're creating. And so what is his choices? He can't hire that out. He can barely hire a driver. That's why he's working 18-hour right, days. Right. So the idea that this supports local family fuel dealers is is not accurate. <laughs> How, well, how can I well, say that more well polite? Said. Maybe stupid. And and why why do we see this 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 concern from these local family fuel dealers that they're going to be put out of business? And and why do you see you know some of the larger uh, corporate interests supporting it? I think we need to take a pause. I think our legislator and I'm going to be yelled at for this, but they don't have the understanding or. Respect for the small businesses here in Vermont that they should have. These people work on a very small profit margin, and I think the legislature thinks many of them, not all of them, thank goodness, but that that well, you've got plenty of money, you own a business. That's just not true. Um, the cost of they're getting hit by the cost of supplies and stuff, just like we are, and they they are always piling stuff on the small businesses, and that's sort of the. The heart of Vermont, isn't it? They're, yeah. they're the small business owner, the coach of the basketball team, and 
um, volunteer on on fire and rescue, and they're Vermonters. Right, and I, and I worry about that this 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 progress that we call where we can order a fuel by phone, we can order a car by phone, we can order a food by phone. Right. That in the end, what you're missing is that connectivity. That seeing your local right. grocer, seeing your local car dealer, your fuel right. dealer, having that human connection with someone who lives in your community, whose kids might play on your, your kids' yep. Little League team. And if we're just doing everything over our phone or over our computer and it's being delivered from China by some some uh, large mail carrier company, what, what are we doing here? Right. And, and you're right about the face-to-face because I think about a year ago we had a problem with our furnace, like bad, and we called our, our service guy. And he knows us. He knows what we've got. And we, Bruce explained to him what happened. He was there just about – he said, I'm be right over because he understood this was serious. Try calling up a, a an 800 number and, and getting the help. We would probably have to leave the house. But this guy came over and fixed it for us because he knew it was serious because he knows us. Yeah, well, the name well, on the side go. of the truck is you can call them at their house. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, that's what he did. Bruce called him right at home. I mean, this is this is how we have delivered warmth and comfort for a hundred years, right? And yet, this legislation seeks to throw a, a, a sand in, in the gears of what is the distribution of an essential commodity that four every five Vermonters depend on for heat, hot water, or right. cooking. Right. I mean, what are we doing? Going back to the day when we were cooking by fire. It would be great. So there's another term I found uh, while reading through this, obligated party. What does that mean? That's a fancy word for saying you're a fuel dealer. Oh. So obligated party is someone who – now, most fuel – because we live in a postage stamp size state, we don't right. live in California, right? So we don't have any refineries here. We don't have any pipelines here. We don't have any sea terminals here. What we have is rail cars and trucks, and and we live in a rural area where most of that fuel comes from – well, it comes from Springfield, Mass. It comes from Albany. It comes from Montreal. Mm-hmm. It comes from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It comes from just over the border in New York. Um, and, and these small fuel dealers bring them across the border. And once you take possession of it at the state line, you are now, quote, unquote, obligated, you are the one that has to write a check every quarter to the Public Utility Commission to pay them to pay someone else to take away your customers. That's what the law says if it becomes law. And and because of that, if you are a larger entity and more capitalized, you certainly can absorb that a lot better than a small deal. Let me just put it this way. We sell most of our fuel in just 45 days. More than half of our fuel huh. is just sold on the most for, the 45 because you're you're using it, right? You're right, using right. your, your furnace right. in the summer. You're using it in the winter. And so we need to be prepared to purchase that fuel, to distribute it, and then to bill our customers in time. What I can tell you, when Tony and Diana James are working 18-hour days, their most important priority is getting fuel in the tanks, right? right? right. And making sure they have enough cash in the bank account because when they turn off the tap at the wholesale terminal and bring it across the river from North Walpole to Bells Falls, what's happening? Well, the EFT has sucked the money out of their bank account, and they've paid for it. Now they got to deliver it and hope to get paid. Now, sometimes it's cash on the barrel, but many times it's – 14 days, 30 right, days, right. and if you have a customer that's struggling, and because you got to see him at the grocery store next week, maybe you give him an extra couple of days, right? Right. But you have a cash flow problem. Into that walks the uh, this new program in which on January 1, on January 1, they want their quarterly check. And when we brought that up, when I asked for a simple six-month stay, and I said, how about you implement this in July 1 rather than January 1? Mm-hmm. 
Because if you do it on July 1, you'll have a better opportunity for compliance because people will – we're just out straight in right, January. Right. And the answer? Hmm. The answer from Senator McCormick was if we want to make it more difficult for them to sell fossil fuels, we shouldn't do that. Oh, as she breathes in air and – that's ridiculous. Yeah. I had an answer to that, something I won't say who. Same thing about the DMV. Um, they, they made it something passable right in our busiest time. And I said to the legislator, senator, I said, could we do this in uh, September, October? No, because we don't campaign in September, October. Ta-da. Yeah. So the, she the, wanted to be able to go home and say, look what we did. While DMV is standing on its head going nutty trying to impl- implement it. Right. So when we have the biggest cash flow issue, right, because we're paying for the fuel and then hoping to get paid within right. 14 to 30 days, when we have the biggest cash flow issue, when we have the biggest labor issue, all these small mom and pops out there right. working 18-hour right. days, that's when they want us to dip into this credit market and write a check. And, and, and the fact that that was greeted as untenable. Right. Was yeah. very disappointing because what they want is no more fossil fuels. Yeah, right. Lovely. Um, so, could you also explain the default delivery agent? Who is that? The D DDA. Do you right. know what that is? That's yes. um, so. What the default delivery agent is? The concept is this. So, as a fuel dealer, remember I said at the outset, what is this? This policy in very simple terms. It's, right. It's hey, fuel dealer. Um, either you help your customers use less of the product you sell or pay someone else to do it for you. So if you're a fuel dealer, you can sell wood pellets or, or install uh, cold climate heat pumps, show the PUC that you did all this, and reduce the, your obligation, the amount you pay. Or you say, I'm not going to do any of that. And then you just write a check to what's called the default delivery agent. Now, who is the default delivery agent? We don't know. Oh, excellent. We don't Good know. answer. We don't know. It, it should be, right? The Office of Economic Opportunity, who funds the weatherization program, because uh-huh. they make sure low-income Vermonters, you know, have uh, uh, weatherization or safe air. But in the reality, someone don't know who doesn't want that. Ooh, they they want it to be a for-profit company, and that's problematic. They uh-huh. want the fuel dealers to be their bank to give them money so they can launch their for-profit oh, company. We'll be right back to follow up on that for-profit comment. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Be right back with you on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I'm here with Matt Coda, uh, representing the Vermont Fuel Dealers Association, advocate. I like it. I'm going to use that instead of lobbyist. I'm an advocate. This is for the Clean Heat Standard Act, which is uh, going to be voted on in Senate economic it, development. Is that where it is well, right you, now? you can't predict when these things will happen, but my prediction is, I mean, you can't. Uh, say for certain, but I predict it will it will vote it out tomorrow morning out of the Senate Natural Resources Committee, and then it will go to appropriations because they got to spend money figuring out how to design this Rube Goldberg machine, and right. then it will go to the full Senate floor probably the first week of March, right before town meeting day, and they'll decide whether or not if they have enough votes to get it over to the House. 
And the key sponsor of this bill was Senator Bray, was it not? Well, it is, and he, that's his committee. So he's the chair of the Senate Natural Resources Committee. So he's uh, certainly been uh, um, running this. And I've had lots of good conversations. I've testified guy, multiple yeah. times. I've had lots of conversations with Senator Bray, and we, we respectfully disagree on, on what's the best way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the thermal sector. Right. And do you have recommendations what the best way is? Well, it's certainly when you're talking about equity – as right. we all are, right. recognizing that that any tax that you put on, whether it's $0.07, cents, $0.70, or $7 a gallon, um, will hurt the lowest uh, income as a regressive tax. I think the, the focus on the low-income communities and making sure they have weatherized homes is the most important right. way to do it. Right. We've had a great program since 1990. We funded it. I think that is where you would find the best success at utilizing all this federal money to install new uh, new equipment right. and, and perform weatherization. And if this is the money that augments it, that helps transition uh, heating service and the heating fuel sector into more energy service businesses, I think that's how you do it. And so, we pitched that. But that well, sounds no too reasonable, fears. Matt. Um, we have a caller, Rob, from Plainfield. Rob, you're on. Um, any question for Matt? Hello, Rob. It's it's actually Bob. I'm the energy oh. coordinator in Plainfield, Vermont. Oh, hi. Sorry. My old my old hometown, Plainfield. Lived there for seven years. Cool. On East Hill Road. Excellent. Yeah. That's I a like good old town. So, what's your comment or question, Bob? Yeah, you know, I I just hope that you understand that you know this is about life of our civilization, and. I understand small businesses because, you know, my, my dad had ran a small business and my friends run small businesses, but you know, a product that the small fuel dealers are just, you know, a link in the chain and they're the distributors of this poison to our planet. And the quicker that we can figure out, you know, I don't want anybody to be losing their income. Nobody does, but it's just like, would you be standing on a school playground selling flavored camel cigarettes to kids? No. Would you be standing at the edge of the road trying to sell weapons of mass destruction to people who don't know how to use them? You know, so, so we have to keep as long as we need to, you know, we need to be getting rid of this crap that, and the money doesn't come to, to the people in the state, Matt, sorry. You know, think of the billions of dollars that go outside of the, the state, and these guys are flying around in their fat little <laughs> executive jet and doing everything else. You know, we're, we're still a poor state. We're still strapped economically. But, you know, for people to be profiteering at the expense of civilization, that just needs to stop. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to get it right. It's not going to happen you know, by one act of legislature or anything else like that. But, you know, if we can just figure out how people can start to conserve, um, you know, don't have single occupancy vehicles on the highway, turn down your heat five degrees, four degrees at night, and a whole lot more at night. I think I I certainly agree with you, Bob, that... um uh, and what Matt was saying, maybe we spend money doing what we do well, just spend, just do it better, just keep doing it. So, Matt, you want to respond to well, Bob? Bob from Plainfield, thank you for that comment. And, and that is a lot, a lot in line of what Senator Dick McCormick um, has been saying for a long time, which is conservation 
is just as important as buying the latest fad, the heating technology. And, and I do agree with him. Here's the problem. This bill doesn't do that. It doesn't encourage people to use less. It encourages them to buy something new. And in this consumer culture that, that we have is – I don't think that serves Vermonters well. I think I think the idea is how do we incentivize people to conserve? And frankly, the only tool that they're using right now is to raise the cost of the of the heating fuel. I agree with you. Thanks for the question, Bob, and for the comment. Um, conservation, they just need to educate us and help us to learn what to do. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that um, people like a warm house. Right. Well, but and, and, and people like warm showers. And we've often find that we install uh, a more efficient um, hot water heater, whether it's oil or gas or electric. Right. Um, their consumption doesn't necessarily go down because they're just taking longer showers. You know, I, I grew up in a house and my father was a plumber and we timed our showers because if you didn't time the showers, the person that was fourth in line got a cold shower. <laughs> and when we got a hot, better hot water heater, when he finally invested in it, you know, the cobbler's uh, son has no shoes. Uh, right, right. When we finally invested in a better hot water heater, yeah, we just took longer showers. So, I mean, you do see that, right? right. I mean, uh, conserving is, is a lifestyle. Uh, is a, is a, is a, it's a habit or it's a, right. you, know, you know, you've got to be able to be in that mindset. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that's, that's what the education is for to, to change your mindset and to get buy-in. I mean, cause I know the shower thing in an RV, that tank is so small, you know, all of a sudden I'm in there going, ah, <laughs> uh, so I understand that, but, um, are they hearing, are they hearing good solutions while people are, it's easy to say no to something, but are, are people, and I know you are, are other people saying, instead of doing this, why don't we do that? Are there recommendations out there or it's just no? Um, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. There is, there is, is there a middle path here? Absolutely. Right. But whether it's, in Montpelier or in D.C. or, frankly, in the city council where I serve. Right. Oftentimes, the, the middle path, the compromise is, is abandoned in favor of, of one way or the other. And, right. and, you know, there was a, there was an effort in 2020 to involve the, the, the fuel dealers in this process. No. We're not part of it anymore. Right. There's a working group of, uh, of the utilities that are designing this. And I haven't, if my invitation came, it got lost in the mail. Yep. I love the all, all the years I've been involved here. Well, just give us more money. I'll do. I'll make it better. I'm like, no, that's not the answer. You just can't throw money at a bad system or an inefficient system and expect a better result. You'll just get more inefficiency, right? That's right. Yeah, I know. They're not listening. Um, so if you have a chance to pick up the phone or an email and you do or do not like what you heard here, the, whether you've pro or con, let the legislature know because um, there must be a, a better mousetrap, eh? Yeah. Well, I mean, no one disagrees with Bob from Plainfield in that Right. The sentiment that we can use less and we need to reduce our greenhouse gas right. emissions. The question is, how do you go about it? And there's often this demagoguery of, oh, these academics came in and got their pictures taken with the, with the senators and, and, you know, talking about the record profits of, uh, the, the, someone in Texas and someone in Saudi Arabia right. and that's fine, but they don't live in Vermont and they do not, they will not pay this fee, this tax. Right. Right. It will be borne by the small local companies who will have no choice if they want to stay in business to pass it on to their consumers. And there's this some sort of, oh, this is some big conspiracy theory that they're trying to stop this by the big oil companies. The big oil companies don't even know we exist. Right. They don't know we well, exist. And if we stop burning everything, 
we still wouldn't make yeah. a significant difference in greenhouse gas Thank emissions. you for saying that. That has been my pitch. For, no matter what we do, it won't move the needle one bit. We are too small. Well, no, that's not saying that. That, you know, you can't preach abstinence from no. the, from the bar stool, but no. it is saying we should not also put ourselves in a position where we are really harming right. our members of our community. All due respect, Bob and Plainfield, heating oil is not cigarettes. It's not alcohol. It's not a luxury. It is not a sin. It is a necessity right. in this cold weather state. And for those that think otherwise, I feel sorry for you. Right. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, thank you, Matt, for coming on board. I think we're going to be hearing from you again. Um, this is quite a fascinating discussion. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Um, get involved. Call. Let them know what you think.